Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. It's been our habit the past few years uh, to preach from the Psalms during the summer, and that's what Sam has been doing uh, the past few weeks. And, and we started doing that for a number of reasons. We, we decided that it was good to have a break from our regular sermon series during the summer. I tend to preach through books verse by verse, sometimes word by word, and, and sometimes it takes me a while. And so it's nice to have a built-in break during the summer where we get to uh, shift our attention and do something a little bit uh, differently. But secondly, we also have been preaching from the Psalms during the summer because uh, during the summer our attendance patterns are a little more irregular. Uh, people are on vacation or out of town, and so rather than having a continuing series, it's nice to have sermons that, that stand alone as a unit as we look at one psalm each week. Of course, I say all that to say that I am not continuing that pattern. Uh, the uh, plan is that this fall, uh, once the school year resumes, uh, I'm going to begin preaching from the book of Acts. And so if you want to know where we're going, that's where we're going. We're going to begin a series. I won't tell you how long it's going to be. It took me four years to get through Luke. Uh, but we're going to take a, a, a begin a series in the book of Acts. But we haven't finished Hebrews yet. Uh, and so I need to do that uh, before we uh, begin our new sermon series. And so we have three, four, five, I never know, uh, sermons left uh, in the book of uh, Hebrews. And so we're going to continue that until we are done, beginning this morning with Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. So our, our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. But before we turn our attention to God's Word, let us pray and ask for His grace to receive it as it is, as the very Word of God. Pray with me. Father God, you tell us that your word is the imperishable seed by which we have been born again, and it is that spiritual milk by which we grow up in our salvation. And so we come to you this morning asking for your grace, asking that you would work in and through your word this morning to give us life and to renew our hearts after the image of our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, be at work through your word and bring forth a harvest to the praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. This is the very word of God. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The word of the Lord. Obviously, at the heart of this paragraph is a request for prayer. And I wonder how you hear such a request. I think sometimes prayer requests can be for us a source of, of guilt or shame because for many of us, prayer is hard. Maybe I should say for all of us, prayer 
is hard. There are some among us who we would consider prayer warriors or, or prayer champions, those who, who labor faithfully day after day, week after week, month after month, praying for God's people and praying for His work in the world. And we are thankful to have such people praying for us. But even those of us who are prayer warriors would still say that prayer is hard. It is labor. It is something at which they toil. But for the rest of us who are anything but prayer warriors, we might say that prayer is a constant struggle. It is something that we have never felt we got right. We've never quite done it the way we, we thought we were supposed to do it. We, we've tried a thousand different programs. We've, we've read a, diff, a dozen books. And yet still we, we recognize that our prayer life is not what it ought to be. And so when we come to a request for prayer like this, we, we want to say, yes, I will pray for you, but we wonder if we're being honest. I want to suggest to you that there are at least two particular difficulties that we face with prayer, two particular obstacles that, that keep us from praying faithfully. Sometimes we struggle with prayer because we doubt prayer's efficacy. We, we wonder whether or not prayer really works. I want to suggest if, if we believe that prayer worked, if we, we believe that, that God really worked through our prayers, would we not pray much more fervently? Would we would not pray much more frequently. It is, a, it is a doubt in our hearts about the efficacy of prayer. But more than this, not only do we struggle with prayer's efficacy, we also sometimes struggle with its purpose. We, even when we can make ourselves pray, even when we get in the good habit of, of having our regular prayer time, we, we wonder what exactly it is we're supposed to be doing with those five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, however long you set aside. We, we don't know exactly how we ought to pray or what we ought to pray for. We, we realize that prayer ought to be something more than simply you know, listing out our wishes and desires to the Lord but we're not sure exactly what to do with it. And I want to suggest to you that the way that the author frames his request for prayer this morning actually addresses both of those struggles. And so not only is he requesting us to pray for him, but he is also showing us how to pray. In his request for prayer, the author shows us first that the purpose of prayer is nothing other than the purpose of God. The purpose of prayer is that God's name might be glorified through the establishment of His kingdom. We will see this when we look at these verses more closely. But not only does He show us what the purpose of prayer is, He also shows us that prayer works because God uses it to accomplish those very purposes. So let's look at both of these uh, more closely, beginning with the purpose of prayer. We see it there in verse 18. The author writes, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. 
Now, when the author says that he has a clear conscience, he is using that language objectively, not subjectively. He's, he's not saying, I'm not aware of any guilt feelings. He is saying that I am objectively, I objectively have a clear conscience. We, we know this from the way that he used the phrase earlier in, in the letter. Look back with me at chapter 9. Earlier in chapter 9, he used this same phrase of a a clear conscience. And we we see in verse 8, he tells us that the... the, I think I have the wrong verse there. It's not chapter 9. Let's see here. Yes, let's try try, uh, chapter 10, I guess. Um, uh, he says, when you, uh, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offering burnt offerings and sin offerings. Um, that's not what I want either. Let's see here. I don't know where I want it. I just have to take my word for it. All right, so somewhere in this letter, he says that the Old Testament offerings, the offerings that we, we used to offer, he said these offerings could not purify your conscience. They could not give you a clear conscience because they were merely the blood of bulls and goats which cannot take away sin. But then he would go on to say, but the blood of Jesus has done what those offerings merely symbolized, merely pointed to. The blood of Jesus Christ offered once and for all time on the cross. That blood has purified our conscience. It has perfected our conscience. It has given us a a pure conscience. It hasn't just dealt with our guilt feelings. It has dealt with our guilt. Our guilt has been removed. We are now righteous. It's not just that we don't feel shame. It's that we have nothing to be ashamed of because we are righteous in the sight of God. A pure, clear, perfect conscience. This is what he is talking about. Now, of course, he he doesn't mean that he is perfect, that he never sins. We we know that also. We we know that that throughout the New Testament, the the authors of the New Testament are constantly telling us that, that while they are endeavoring to do what is right, they continue to fall short. That in this life, we will never attain a perfection. And yet, what does the author mean when he says that he has a clear conscience? He means that he has been endeavoring to do the good works that God has prepared for him to do. He has been endeavoring to do the work that God has given him, or to use his own language from this letter. He has been endeavoring to run the race that has been marked out for him. He has a clear conscience inasmuch he has been seeking to do the things that God has given him to do. And what I want you to notice is the way that he ties that to his request. Notice what he says. He says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. That that sounds strange in our ears. Pray for us because we're seeking to do the things that God has given us to do. Pray for us because we have a clear conscience. We're not used to giving reasons why someone should pray for us, and yet that is exactly what the author does. He is asking for prayer. He is boldly asking for prayer because he is committed to doing the work that God has given him to do. He has a clear conscience. He He is desiring to act honorably in all things. And I want to suggest to you that that connection teaches us something important about the purpose of prayer. 
It teaches us that prayer is inseparably connected to the work that God has given us to do. I'm sure you've heard the illustration that that prayer is not meant to be the bell you ring to, to bring the butler, but rather it is the radio that is entrusted to the lieutenant in the field so that he can call for the provisions and the resources that he needs in the midst of the battle. It is a good illustration. Prayer is not simply the the bell that we ring to to get God to do what we want Him to do, but rather it is intimately connected with what God is doing and what He intends to do through us. We we see this in the model prayer that that Jesus gave to His disciples, the prayer that we have prayed even this morning, the, the prayer we so often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. At the end of that prayer, there are basic petitions Petitions for things that we need. We we are commanded to to pray for our daily bread. And that's not just our material sustenance, not just the food we eat, but all the material provisions that we will need. We are to pray for forgiveness, that we might continue in God's good favor. Not that we need to be re-justified, but that we need to have our sins constantly dealt with because we are constantly in need of, of cleansing, just as we constantly are needing to wash our hands because we might have been contaminated by some virus. We are constantly seeking cleansing that we might be about the work that God has given us to do. And we pray for protection from the schemes and the attacks of the, the evil one who would seek to undermine us, whether directly or rather through the world and our own flesh. These are petitions that we bring before God, but they, are, they come to us in the context of God's purposes. They follow the petitions for the, the glory of God's name and for the coming of His kingdom and for the doing of His will. You see, when we ask for our daily bread, when we ask for forgiveness, when we ask for protection, we are asking for the things we need to be instruments in God's accomplishment of the first half of the prayer. There's a a logic there. There's There's a flow there. We pray that God's name might be hallowed. We pray that His kingdom might come, that His will might be done. And then we ask for the resources we need to be a participant in that great work. It's the logic of the Lord's Prayer. And it's the the logic that the author has here. He, He recognizes that prayer is intimately connected with the work that God has given him to do pastor that I worked with in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, my, my mentor in the first six or seven years of my ministry, he used to remind people of this connection between the purposes of God and the, and the purpose of prayer when he would visit them in the hospital. When he would go to, to visit someone in the hospital, he would always ask them, so why should I ask God to heal you? Now, I've never used that question because I don't think I have the, uh, the bedside manner to pull it off. But somehow he could. <laughs> and with that simple question, he could remind people that, that their desire for healing was not unrelated or should not be unrelated for God's purposes in their life. Why do they want to be healed? Why do they want to be restored to health? Why do they want the the medicines and the the procedures that the doctors were doing to be blessed by God, that they might be restored in their physical strength? Was it simply so that they could do what they wanted to do? Was it simply because they found the illness inconvenient or uncomfortable? Or was it because they wanted to get back to doing what God had given them to do? Why should we ask God to heal you? 
The purpose of your request ought not to be separate from God's purpose for your life. And I believe that we should ask that same type of question of all of our petitions. As a pastor, I, I, I pray for this church. I, I pray for Trinidad. I want this church to experience peace. I do not want it to be disrupted by contention and, and division. And I want it to grow. I, I want it, its ministry to, to reach new people and to, to help people grow up in their faith. But why do I want those things? Is it simply because it's easier to be a pastor of a peaceful church? Is it simply because growth looks good in the eyes of my peers? Or are those petitions connected to God's purpose for my calling as a pastor, to be a minister of His gospel, to be an ambassador of His kingdom? We need to ask. We need to ask the, the right questions of our petitions. Why is it that, that you want that job? Why is it that you want to get into that particular school or, or program? Why do you want healing? Why do you want that relationship restored? Whatever it is that, that is on your heart, whatever it is that you are lifting up before the Lord, is your petition connected to God's purpose for your life? The author is showing us that they must be. We must bring our petitions in submission to God's purpose. And when we do this, when we learn to begin praying this way, when we begin to, to pray that, that God would, would give us the resources that we need and the opportunities that we need, that we might do His will, it frees us to, to pray that prayer that Jesus prayed with a new sincerity. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. I think we sometimes use that as a way to give God an out. Just in case you're not going to answer my prayer, I'll just throw this on the end so that I don't have to be too uh, uh, disillusioned by your lack of an answer. We, we use it as a, as a cop-out rather than as a, as a sincere desire, recognizing that what we want above all else is that God's will be done. And if what we're asking is not in accord with His will, it is better that God not give us what we're asking, but to do something else entirely. Yes, this is what we want. Yes, this is what seems good good to us. It's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He longs to be restored to this church. He is asking for it boldly. And yet, we must recognize that at the end of the day, what we want is not what we think God's will is, but what God thinks His will is. God is wiser than us. He knows better. And at the end of the day, we pray, not my will, but your will be done, not to give God an out, but because we recognize our own limitations. We recognize that we do not always see the full picture. And so our petitions must be connected to the purposes of God for our life. What is it that God has given you to do? What is it he, has He given you to do as a, as a student? What is it that He has given you to do as a, as a parent? What is it that He's given you to, to do in your particular vocation? What is it that He has given you to do in this community? 
May your petitions serve his purposes for your life. That's how we should pray. That's the purpose of prayer. And when we begin to recognize this, when we, when we begin to see the purpose of prayer more clearly, it frees us to, to better understand how prayer works. When we see the purpose of prayer, we're prepared then to see the efficacy of prayer. Again, this is something that we, we struggle with. We, we struggle to believe that prayer works. And, and our struggles with prayer's efficacy, I think, come in at least two types. First, there are sort of the, the philosophical questions that we ask regarding prayer, the, the theoretical questions, the, the intellectual questions. If God is sovereign over all things, and if God has already foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, why pray? What's the point? How can prayer make a difference if, if God is sovereign and if He's already predetermined everything that's going to happen? Such questions, at least at first glance, seem profound. When you first began to, to see this dissonance, you probably felt smart. You could see the problem that, that other people weren't aware of. You could see the, the inconsistency. It feels intellectual to, to recognize this dilemma. But I want to suggest to you that it's actually the other way around. It's actually quite simple to see the problem with prayer. It's actually quite simple to, to, to see that there, there's, a, there's a difficulty that we have with reconciling God's absolute sovereignty over all things so that not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will and the efficacy of prayer. You don't have to have a big brain to, to see that difficulty. What is more difficult for us is to accept the resolution, the one that Scripture offers. Because what we need to see is that, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Scripture teaches this without ambiguity. Not a hair on your head is black or white. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. He is the one who calls out the stars. He is the one who sends the rain. He is the one who controls the river. He is the one who, who directs the wind. He is absolutely sovereign, turning even the heart of the king according to his desires. He rules over all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. And yet, at the same time, as you've heard me say so often, Scripture also teaches with equal clarity human agency. God made us as responsible moral agents. We make real choices every day, and those choices matter. Those choices have consequences. Those choices produce a harvest, good or bad, depending on what we have sown. Human beings have real agency. We make real choices. Scripture teaches that with absolute clarity. And so we must confess that both are true, even if we can't explain it. 
Even if our brains are, are too small to tie together the loose ends, even if we, we don't know how all the pieces fit, we say that the maker of heaven and earth has told us that he is sovereign and he has told us that we are, are free moral agents and we must confess both. We must hold to both. And the fact that we can't reconcile them shouldn't really bother us. Did you really think your brain was big enough to comprehend God's cosmos? Did you really think that your brain was big enough to understand all the ways of God? Does it really surprise you that you can't hold all of God in your mind at one time? As those who, who believe in the God of Scripture, the, the one who spoke into existence the entire cosmos by the word of his power, we should be okay with acknowledging that God is bigger than our brains. And for the most part, we are. We actually live with this tension every day. We, we actually live this out with, without much difficulty. We, we confess that God is sovereign, and yet we still look both ways before we cross the street. We, we confess that God has numbered our days, and yet we still eat and drink and sleep and care for our bodies. We, we, we confess that, that God is, is sovereign, and yet we still respect gra gravity when we're cleaning out the gutters. Why do we do this? It doesn't make sense. God's determined your days. What difference does it make whether you fall off the roof? What difference does it make whether you eat or sleep? What difference does it make whether you get hit by a bus? We immediately recognize the foolishness of such assertions. Should we not also recognize the foolishness of saying, what difference does it make if you pray? Prayer is one of the means that God has ordained to execute his will. It is a tool that he has given us that his sovereign will might come to pass. And so the philosophical questions regarding the efficacy of prayer, let me suggest to you they shouldn't trouble you all that much. But there is another type of question that we have regarding the, uh, the effectiveness of prayer. A, a more existential question. The question that, that stems from saying in your heart, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and it didn't work. I prayed. I prayed earnestly. I prayed sincerely. I, I prayed faithfully. And my loved one didn't recover. I prayed for that new job. And the Lord didn't give it to me. I prayed that I would get into that school, but I only got into my third or fourth or fifth choice. I prayed for my daily bread, and yet I have a pile of bills that I can't pay. I prayed for my marriage, and yet we are still at loggerheads. In such situations, it is easy for us to begin to question the efficacy of prayer. I want to suggest to you that those questions far too often stem from a wrong understanding of the purpose of prayer. 
Our questions regarding the the efficacy of prayer often stem from, from believing that the purpose of the prayer is to get God to do what we want Him to do. But we must begin to see that prayer is not the tool that God has given us to force His hand. It's not the tool that we have to get God to do what we want. It is is not the the lamp that we can rub to to release the genie with all of his power. But rather, prayer is the tool that God has given us that we might do his will. See, he has prepared in advance good works that we might do them. And prayer is one of the means by which he gives us the strength and the will and the wisdom to do all that which he has given us to do. And when we begin to see this, when we we begin to to see the connection between the efficacy of prayer and and the, the purpose of prayer, we can begin to see unanswered prayers in new ways. We can begin to see that when God does not answer as we desired, it must be because he is doing something other. Notice how the the author expresses his confidence here in in verse 19. The author says, I I urge you to, to do this all the more earnestly so that I might be restored to you the sooner. He is boldly asking them to to pray for him, that he might be restored to him. And and he's confident that if they will pray, and if they will pray earnestly, then he will be restored to them all the sooner. He he is confident that it is is God's will for him to to have the opportunity to to again be their pastor, to again be a a leader in their midst, to again lead them towards faithfulness in Christ. And so he he is praying, and he's asking them to pray to that end. But we must recognize that he may be wrong. (laughs) Think how often Paul made plans that he wasn't able to execute. He, He wanted to go east, and God kept closing the doors until finally he had a dream of a man from Macedonia that sent him west. He wanted to go to Rome, but was not able Time and time again, he he wanted to go to to Corinth so often and wasn't able to get there that the the Corinthians began to wonder whether he was really serious in his plans. And he says, yes, my plans are not yes and no. My desire is to come. But ultimately, I'm a servant of the Lord and must wait upon his will. The same thing might happen here to the author. He is confident that the Lord is going to restore him. But I'm sure if you asked him, he would say what Paul says in in the first chapter of Philippians. He said, you know what? I don't actually know what God is going to do. I think this will be for my release. Because I I think my being restored to you is, is what God has. I think it's the work that he's given me to do. And so he prays for it boldly, but yet he may be wrong. But we need to hear this. Even if he has misunderstood God's purpose, even if God's purpose is not to restore him to this particular congregation, even if he has misunderstood God's purpose, he has not misplaced his confidence. 
His absolute assurance that God will work for the glory of his name and that God will provide him with everything that he needs to to do the good works that he has been given to do. That assurance is absolutely right. And we must learn to pray with the same bold confidence. We must boldly ask for anything and everything we need to do the will of God that he has given to you. Last night my wife was uh, gone and and, uh, uh, most of my other kids were gone and it was just Hannah and I. And so we watched Frozen 2. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie or not. Uh, But I I saw it for the first time last night. And in Frozen 2, the white-haired girl, I forget her name, um, I should have written it down. But anyway, the the white-haired girl, uh, she is absolutely certain that she has been born with these magical powers for a purpose. She she said, "I I was born for this. And that resonates with us, and, and we're so excited, and it's, just this, it's this huge thing where two nations are going to be reconciled together because of this girl's magical powers. And we wish that we could have a purpose like that. Well, let me suggest to you that you have been born who you are, where you are, for a purpose. It may not be the, the grand purpose of, of reconciling two nations together, but God has prepared good works for you to do. He intends to accomplish His kingdom purposes where, through you, where He has put you, with the resources that He has put at your disposal. And so that longing for purpose is a right longing The problem is that we sometimes only associate it with the big. I've often heard people say, are you willing to do something so big for God that it's doomed to failure unless God be in it? I encourage you to turn that question on its head. Are you willing to do something so small for God that no one will notice? But it's what God has given you to do. Because whatever it is that God has given you to do in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, whatever it is that God has given you to do, He will give you the resources to do it. He will give you the resources you need to accomplish His purposes for your life. Yes, those purposes might be other than we originally thought. We we might misread God's will. But if our confidence is, is in Him, our trust will never be misplaced. And so we see that the efficacy and the, the purpose of prayer are bound together with God's kingdom purposes in this world. We pray because prayer is the tool that God has given us that we might do His will And because prayer is the tool that he has given us that we might do his will, we can be absolutely confident that prayer will work. Because God will accomplish his purposes. So ask yourself, how would my prayer life look differently if I really believe this? How would my prayer life look differently if I had this confidence, if I, if I believed absolutely that God had prepared good works for me to do, and if, I, and if I believed absolutely that He would not fail to give me every resource I needed to accomplish those good works, 
how would my prayer life look differently? Our struggle is that we struggle to believe it. So if you're struggling to believe these transformational truths, where do you begin? We'll begin with faith like a mustard seed. Like the Father, say, I believe, help my unbelief. Go to God in humble prayer and begin simply by asking Him for faith to believe in these things, in these truths which He has revealed. Faith is His gift. Ask for it. For those who ask will receive. Ask Him to help you believe that prayer is His tool in your hands and that with this tool at your disposal, you can do every good work that He has prepared in advance that you should do them. And because such a tool is entrusted to us in the name of Jesus Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for the gift of prayer. Father, forgive us for the ways that, that we neglect it. Forgive us for the ways that, that we misuse it. But Father, begin a good work in us even now where you would open our eyes to the purpose and the power of prayer and that you would set us free to wield it to the praise of your glory. This we ask boldly, knowing that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.